With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. That was a really strange introduction. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Today is, what is today? Wednesday, November the 11th, 2015, and we are here with Mr. Bob Schaefer. Of the Bob Schaefer family. Hello, Bob. Hi. Hey there. So what you got in store for us tonight? Well, we're going to talk about court procedures and uh, how to defend in a criminal court procedure where you're not guilty, and you're probably not guilty even though you may think you are. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, in other words, Procedure is most important for them. And who are you? You're not a lawyer. They're for, they're full-time people. They get paid full-time to know the law, and yet they violate their own procedure all the time. I would say our criminal court system is a criminal court system. <laughs> you notice the little pause I have there. Yeah. They, they, there's more crime committed in in the courthouse and on the streets. So I'll just go ahead and go into it? Go for it. Okay. Uh, I'm probably one of the first people that would really like our court systems to be honest and obey their oath of office and give us a true impartial tribunal that can weigh the evidence. Actually, Bob... Actually, I'm sorry? Uh, yeah, I, I, now that you gave me that pause, there's something I want to say. Uh, if you guys have any problems, issues, or anything like that, um, uh, you can obtain coaching with Bob for whatever kind of issue you have at youhavetheright.com. So if you want to come check it out, uh, we're also starting to have these calls archived in the member section, the monthly membership. Um, that's there as well. So go to youhavetheright.com, or you can contact me, um, kish at mailhouse.com, K-I-S-H at mailhouse.com, if you want to set up a free consultation. So uh, there we go, Bob. So go ahead. Okay. This kind of reminds me of a uh, a great uh, concert pianist that uh, did a concert, and uh, afterwards they had a reception and somebody came up and said, you know, I do half my life to be able to play the piano like you do. And the response was, I did. And so I I bring that over to what I do. Uh, I have a lot of people want to know what I know. And I have spent roughly half of my adult life, more than half of my adult life, I've spent 36 years in studying law. And there's a lot of people that take these these conference calls and past seminars, and they they play them over and over and over. And you see, I'm I'm putting my 36 years in a nutshell here. I'm I'm hitting the high points, 
And so uh, I talk to people all the time that have listened to a lot of my stuff, and they start talking like I do, and I'm, I'm very honored because I know that they're on the right track and they can defend themselves uh, without an attorney. Now, why would one want to defend themselves without an attorney? The answer is uh, Chief Justice Warren Berger made this statement one time, and he was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He says 95% of all trial lawyers, and they're cut above the regular lawyers, but 95% of all trial lawyers are incompetent. And and yet, when you go into court, they really want you to have an attorney. And the, the reason for that, because it, the judge wants to lay you away, and he wants to do it the easy way, and he wants you to have an attorney that will explain to you how that's going to happen. And, you know, for a nice big fee, maybe we can get you some more time, and we can maybe get more time to comply. And I say we don't comply. I don't comply, and I help people not comply, especially with code enforcement. They have absolutely no jurisdiction on private land, yet they think they do. Uh, This is a lack of training on their part. And so code enforcement will come after people with uh, criminal action. You know, you're going to go to jail, boy. You're going to jail for three years. And we've got you for three misdemeanors. And, you know, is that uh, paper terrorism or what? You know, they they have called me a paper, paper terrorist because I fight back. And it scares the daylights out of them. They just, when they find out I'm involved, you know, they, uh, they know that this is not going to go away real fast because I'm going to hold their feet to the fire. Now... <clears throat> I've mentioned this in the past, but there's always new people. When I was in real estate many years ago, I've done a lot of things in my 74 years, but I was in real estate, and I went to seven times more continuing education than I needed to just because I was old and I needed to get caught up. And one of the one of the quotes that they say there for investors are the three most important uh, aspects in uh, investing in real estate is location, location, and location. Well, the three, and I've translated that into the courtroom. The three most important things to remember in the courtroom is procedure, procedure, (laughs) and procedure. And this is how I win my cases is because they always violate their own procedure. They, these are, most people that work for the government couldn't make it in the real world like I did. You know, I've had over 400 employees and under four different state contractors, license classifications. And there's a lot of people that tried to compete with me, but I beat them on my procedure of what I did, you know, uh, uh, in the contract. And, um, you know, I was never sued by any customer, supplier, or employee in all the years I've been in business since June of 1959, which was, what, 56 years ago or something like that. Anyway, when people can't can't do it, you know, they run up bills with their suppliers and, and they just finally give up. What do they do? They go get a government job. And if a government job, they, they get their paycheck on Friday. They have unemployment, disability insurance, vacations with pay, all the, all the benefits, and they brag about it. And there's this real 
they just think they just did a wonderful thing. Well, over there, they're not scrutinized as much as they were by the public that chose me over them. And so they make a lot more mistakes, and there's nobody pushing on them, and they always get paid on Friday, and they, there's nobody to, to force it. So I take advantage of their mistakes. I use their law against them, and that's how I'm successful. And they know it. My name comes up in the, in the monthly meeting every now and then. Um, you know, Schaefer uh, has sued another judge or... And everything is done uh, righteously. You know, they needed to be sued. And one of the issues is the oath of office. I just helped a man uh, sue two judges in the local superior court, uh, husband and wife. Well, uh, when I did my research, which I'm going to tell you how to do this for yourself, I found out that uh, the husband administered the oath to his wife. Well, that's a conflict of interest. He also signed his name to it as the one that administered the oath. Well, I pulled his oath of office, and guess what? It's a completely different signature. It's not even close. There's a forgery going on here. Somehow, there's a forgery. And so one of those oaths of office is is invalid. And besides that, the oath of office isn't complete. So uh, they're, they're impersonating officers. So I helped this man sue them, and now they have to and we did that in a bankruptcy situation with an adversary proceeding. Um, just a little recap, because uh, people get really confused uh, about what court they're in and what, what they have to do, and they probably should have an attorney or learn the law themselves. But you see, the problem today, and I've mentioned this before, is that most Americans would rather have another beer and watch the game than to take any time out and uh, read their Bible or study law. Now, the original colonists, they had two books in their house, a law, a law dictionary and a holy Bible. And that's why America became the strongest, most powerful nation in the world, is because we had a moral country that, that was uh, law-abiding. And now it's not that way at all. It's completely the opposite. And uh, political correctness has got us in this, in this position. Uh, I'm, I guess you might say I'm a conservative, and I'm probably more conservative than anybody ever met. But, you know, I tell people my great-grandfather came to America from Prussia, landed in Whitehall, Wisconsin, and he was a conservative prepper. You know, they don't like preppers today either. They want you to be dependent on the government. Go get your food stamps, and we'll take care of you. You don't need God anymore. And so... As a prepper, he built a, a three-story barn, and he filled it full of hay. He built a silo, filled it full of grain, and he was prepared for the worst winter. He could feed his cattle and keep them warm, and he was ready for whatever happened. And uh, I think that's what we should all be. We should all be dependent on ourselves. And, and even though sometimes it's hard to, you know, make ends meet and get get a little ahead, but uh, it's something that we should do. They have what they have call 25-year food now. You can buy it and it's in a bucket, and, and you know if things go really bad in a month or two or a year or five, you've got food for your family because the store shelves are going to go down. Anyway, <clears throat> so there's, there's two basic law systems on planet Earth, the law of the land and the law of the sea. 
The law of the land only has one law system in it. That's the common law. Today's government hates the common law. They they stay away from it. They they function under the law of the sea. So the law of the land and the term common law are actually synonymous. There's case law that says it's synonymous. Now, America was based on British common law, but every country that ever existed has its own common law. The common law is simply unwritten law based on reason, logic, and common sense through uh, custom, usage, practice, and procedure. It's unwritten. No legislature sat down and said, you know, there ought to be a law against. Well, we take advantage of that on the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment was written in 1787, excuse me, 1789, and it was confirmed by all the states in 1791. Well, today's courts and all the people that are working for government are bound by the intent of the original lawmaker. That's why it's important to study what the original guys wanted, the, the, the founding fathers. And, of course, the people today, they say, well, they were just a bunch of rich white slave owners. They, they try to, to run these people down like we don't want to have anything to do with them. But, yes, they created a government that's been the best government ever invented. And there's people that will challenge that statement. They'll say, well, today's, uh, today uh, the Constitution is outdated. It's archaic. You know, it was written 230 years ago, and, uh, you know, we've gone on gone beyond that. We have, you know, railroads they didn't have then. We have aircraft they didn't have then. We have the Internet. And, yes, I point out to them that our Constitution was designed to be truly a living document, but it could be changed not through judicial activism like it has happened, but through the amendment procedure. And it's been amended 27 times. So I say if you don't like the, what's there, then amend it or get behind the group that will amend it. Now, we had, years ago, we had, um, uh, or they, they they came against all the bootleggers and stuff with an amendment. Well, there were so many people with the trial by jury situation where their neighbors wouldn't convict them, they came back with a repeal. So, the amendments can be made and they can be repealed. And that's the way we have a living constitution. Anyway, so under the law of the land and the law of the sea, the, the law of the sea has all the other laws. That would be Roman civil law, equity law, administrative law. You know, we have a president, president that has uh, executive uh, orders. They only apply to people working in the executive branch. Like, for instance, if you worked for Cal State University or one of the, you know, Honeywell Corporation, they can pass uh, executive orders, but they can't take it off the curb out into the community. And that's where a lot of people don't understand uh, why a lot of the stuff that's happening in Washington doesn't apply to the man on the street because there's no contracting. To get you under administrative law, there has to be an administrative law contract. That contract has to be entered into knowingly, willingly, intentionally, and freely after full disclosure of all obligations, duties, and responsibilities. Plus, it has to have a valuable consideration of at least $1 of silver. We call it a silver dollar. 
We don't have those anymore. So those all those contracts are invalid because there's no valid, valuable consideration. And it has to be there has to be a meeting of the minds. You can't be tricked in it. So you know they say, well, you know your birth certificate and your driver's license and your social security, you know you're contracted with the government for all these privileges. Well, wait a minute. Show me the full disclosure that I was waiving my sovereign allodial rights to take that privilege. If you didn't give me full disclosure and get $1 in silver, it was valuable consideration. It's not, val- it's not valid. But you see, under the law of the sea, they deal with persons. You, you look, there's no, it doesn't talk about people. The people are sovereign. Persons are under all those laws. Now, in 1994, I needed to raise some serious money. Uh, I had borrowed some money from my parents, and I thought, you know, I'm not getting paid back. I need to pay them back before they die, and I need some law books. And so I had an asset that that I thought I would never sell. It, it was a armor-plated, bulletproof gangster car. Custom built, custom built for Dutch Schultz, the Baron of New York City, had one-inch-thick bulletproof glass and machine gun ports in all four doors, and a place to store a Thompson submachine gun under the floorboard on the passenger side in the front. I mean, how cool is that? I cost for 33 years, but you know, I said, what do I have that I can sell so I can get out of debt? So I let Christie's, the world-famous auction house, sell my car, and it now sits at Whiskey Pizza, State Line, Nevada, next to Bonnie and Clyde's death car. Well, I bought, I paid off all my debts, and I bought a wall full of books. I bought all brand new from West Publishing, the California Code Annotated and the United States Code Annotated. They all deal with, under the law of the sea, civil law. And that's not where I am. Uh, so I, I I bought a set of books, and in uh, my nine thousand law books, I have a I have two sets of of case law from sixteen fifty eight to eighteen ninety seven. Now that's all common law, every bit of it. And so I pulled good stuff out of there. Like I found in there that the law of the land and the law of the sea started and stopped at the mean or average high tide mark on the coast until 1844 when Congress decided a ship's captain should be able to maintain law of the sea control over his ship for the rest of the voyage. And so they allowed the law of the sea to come inland. Well, that was a good thing, but now they've twisted it and turned it so much that now the, our today's governments are under the law of the sea. Now, if you look at the constitutions, all of them, they talk about how the, it's a plan to build a government. And they have a legislative, an executive, and judicial. These are in different articles, excuse me, articles in, in these constitutions. And the, it talks about in the judicial, they shall be courts of record. A, a, a constitutionally valid state court is a court of record. You look at Black's Law Dictionary, the older dictionaries, like, uh, you know, uh, third, fourth, fifth edition, it says that a court of record proceeds at the common law. So when they're not proceeding at the common law, they're not a court of record. They're a court not of record, and they admit it. 
Now, if you're if you hear a judge say, well, you know, you're in the jury, uh, you will judge the facts, I will judge the law. What you have there is a jury trial. You do not have a trial by jury, which is what the Constitution uh, provides us. The founding fathers wanted our own neighbors to judge us. You know, I know Bob, he wouldn't do a crime. No, no, in, a, in a jury trial, you can't know the defendant. They, they, if you have any, any relatives that know the defendant, they'll throw you off the jury panel. This way they can, they can convince them that you're evil and bad and a, excuse me, a criminal. So if you ask a judge, uh, now, am I going to be able to appeal this? And he'll say, well, yes. You know right there you don't have a trial by jury because if you look up the Seventh Amendment, it says no, there will be no appeal. In other words, you can get it over with and get on with your life. You don't have to spend years on in, in the appeal. But if you get sucked into one of those jury trials or law of the sea court, which everybody gets, then you can appeal it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Now, there's a, so there's these two basic law systems. Then there's, uh, in America, we have two court systems. We have the state courts and the federal courts. The federal courts uh, offer a bankruptcy side and a, and a um, civil side where you can sue them. Well, I use that side to sue the, the attorneys and the judges and whoever I want to sue. Um, in the, now, in the area of foreclosure, Sometimes you need to file a bankruptcy because that's an automatic stay. Everything comes to a screeching halt. If you just sue them on the other side of the courthouse, you can ask for a stay or a restraining order, but oftentimes they don't give it to you, and that's a negative thing to start out with. So to save your house, it's a good thing to file a bankruptcy, but that's not going to save your house. Your trustee with security for that loan, and so they'll get relief of stay and eventually uh, sell your house and evict you, unless you know Bob. And so what we do is we do, we file the bankruptcy and then we file an adversary proceeding, and we show the court that the um, lender never lent you anything, that you funded the loan with your signature on a promissory note, and that they didn't give you full disclosure of that fact. And so that's good reason to rescind your signature. And you can rescind it any time in the future because of the fraud involved. So that's one procedure we do is we send signatures. Then we do QWR letters. That stands for Qualified Written Request. And we give them all kinds of things that they find really hard to answer. And they have to, within 20 days after receiving it, which you'll know because you, you, uh, we recommend you do uh, express mail where they keep track of all the times when it was delivered. They, from when they get it, they have 20 days to say, hey, we got it. They have to within 20 days. If they don't do that, see, this is a procedural thing. We set them up. I set them up for a fall and a default. Default means discharge. So right away, they default on the 20-day thing. That means the loan, if there was one, is discharged. Now they have 60 days to respond. They don't ever respond properly. They have to respond properly. There's another default. 
We give them an offer to pay. We have a series of four offers to pay, and they can't answer because we use their law. We say, you know, we want to get this paid. You know, we're just good guys. You know, I'm offering to get this all cleared up. I want to get this all cleared up. Uh, but I just need to know what you require me to pay this then. And by what authority can you require that thing? Because the, the, the dollar of silver is called a thing in law. And do you require everybody else to, require, to pay that for your judgment or your, or your uh, this works on judgments and credit cards and everything? Uh, or, or the, um, the, um, uh, sorry, the mortgage? And so since they didn't loan you any dollars of silver, why are they wanting to come and take my house? You know, they, they, they have no skin in the game. Are they trying to get a free house here? Because judges have, have come down on people saying, are you trying to get a free house? And the answer is, uh, well, it looks to me like somebody's going to get a free house. Why should it be them? They have no skin in the game. They, I funded the loan. They've been making money on me, hand over fist for eight months or eight years. And now they, they're wanting my house. Now, here's the reason they can't sell your house, and you've got to bring it up in court where you're going to get wasted because the judges, this is why I have very little respect for judges, especially in a foreclosure case, because their retirement is based on mortgage-backed securities. So that's why they want you to pay your mortgage. They'll say, have you, did you borrow some money? Yes. Did you pay... Make payments, yes. Did you stop making payments? Yes. Well, see, that's your problem, sir. You you cannot use this court to get out of paying your bills. And so the the real answer is, well, with all due respect, uh, at this point in time, what I did or didn't do is irrelevant. It's what they have failed, refused, or neglected to do. And they have, I can prove they have no standing to be in the courthouse because when they securitized or bifurcated or separated my promissory note to invest in the stock market. They separated it from the deed of trust or the mortgage, and it's no longer security for the loan. So now they're trying to use the, the, what was formerly the security for the loan to sell my house. And that means that's they're committing fraud upon this court. And I know that, and this court knows that, or reasonably should know it. And it looks like this attorney over here is attempting to get this honorable court to become an accomplice to their criminal act. One judge just got up and ran off the bench when he heard that, put it that way. But that's exactly what it is. And they have, a, they should recuse themselves if their if their uh, uh, retirement is invested in mortgage-backed securities. Anyway, we were going to talk about, uh, tonight we were going to talk about the, uh, the um, affidavit of material facts. And I, I threw the word material in there because just an affidavit of facts could be something like, I love my cat. And that's not material to the situation at hand, sir. So we, we have the word affidavit of material facts. And by the way, I should point out that uh, court discovery is an awesome tool. There's four kinds. There's there's a request for admissions. That's one whole set. And if they don't answer it, you know, a lot of people say, well, they won't answer that. That's exactly what we want them to do. We want them to default. That's discharged. 
and they have to answer it, or everything you ask them to admit to is deemed admitted. They admitted to all this, Your Honor. Now, then there's interrogatories. That's where you just ask them any question you want to. And then it's not an admission type of a question. Then there's depositions. I don't do depositions. They just cost money, and everybody's broke, and you have to hire a, a transcriber and, a, and a, you know, rent a hall or something where everybody meets together. And then there's uh, there's one other. Let's see. It'll come to me. Anyway, there's, there's three that we use. Um, oh, requests for documents, papers, and things. So in that... Discovery, that form of discovery, you can ask them for the paperwork where they sold your promissory notes and they converted it into a stock forever. It can never be, it can never go back into becoming a promissory note. In other words, your IOU, so to speak, is no longer available. So in in our offer to pay, we ask, where can we bring our legal tender cash? They don't want cash. But we ask, where can we bring our legal tender cash and retrieve our promissory note? They don't have it. If they do, that's a crime under FAS 140 and under the Carpenter decision. It's 128 years old. It's never been been uh, overturned. So, in other words, they don't have your IOU, and they couldn't give it to you if you had a suitcase full of money. And then we ask them by, uh, what it is they require. Well, they can only require dollars of silver because the 20th Act of April 2, 1792 is the only American law that ever defined a dollar. It's never been reversed. And we talk dollars all the time. And they put people in jail for failure to pay. Well, guess what? You haven't been able to pay for anything since 1965. You haven't paid for a meal or a pack of groceries or a car payment or a house payment or anything. You've only discharged the debt. If you took a suitcase of money into your, into your mortgage broker to, to pay off your mortgage, you're not going to pay it off. You're going to discharge it. And they will give you a document entitled Mortgage Discharge. They know to use the D word. They can't use the P word. It's not paid. You didn't pay it. You discharged it. And there's a big difference. And even though the end result is the same, they can't come after you. It's a big difference, and so they know the difference. So anyway, um, we have this affidavit of material facts where we, we it's kind of, it's, it borders on discovery. But you see, in, in the federal system, they have, you need to look up Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 26, and there's A, B, C, and it goes on. And in that, you cannot go into discovery after they get to make their motion to dismiss you and throw you out. They want you to throw out your own case. Now, first of all, they'll contact you and and tell you, you know, you don't have a case. And, you know, if we, if we have to defend this, we're going to come after you for attorney's fees. And I just laugh out loud at that because I know how to get rid of attorney's fees with an offer to pay. Because they can, they'll default on that. And this, so in other words, you don't have to fear about all those little veiled threats that they throw out. You know, we're going to put you in jail and we're going to sell your house and we're going to, you know, hit you with all these sanctions. And it's just all, it's, it's terrorism, so to speak, uh, from the courthouse. 
and they get away with it because there's very few people like us that say, wait a minute, that's not going to work in this case. And so uh, we we, de- we demand the, that they tell us what they're requiring this, uh, for instance, this judgment or the attorney's fees, what are you? You know, I got rid of a $58,000 attorney fee for, for an attorney that works for cities in their code enforcement. And uh, he charged the lady $58,000. He didn't get it. He didn't get a red cent of it. And I just helped a guy uh, do an offer to pay for $185,000 Superior Court judgment, and they defaulted. Then I helped him do a, a $1.8 million offer to pay on a $1.8 million uh, judgment, and they've defaulted on that. So, you see, and he had attorneys for years and years, and he paid over $100,000 to his attorneys, and they've just not done him any good at all. You know, I tell people, if you have a really good attorney and a good CPA, you don't need any other enemy because they're part of the system. They're officers of the court. They're here, here to help you understand what, how you're getting screwed over by the court system. And so the judge doesn't have to explain it to you. That's the reason they want you to hire an attorney. Anyway, um, the, the oath of office, we were talking about that earlier. The, the uh, constitutions require people to swear or affirm and then sub- sign or subscribe to an oath of office. And it's very rare that they do the constitutionally valid oath of office, especially in California. And uh, the judge that I told you about that administered his life, so neither one of them swore or affirmed the two-paragraph oath. Now, I'm going to read to you what they didn't, what they didn't uh, say and, or, or using their oath of office, and you just have to wonder, uh, why? What, what's, what's wrong with it? They, uh, let's see here. They're they're the ones that that have to do it and, and, and have this. They have the job. They have to swear to uh, hold the job. Now here here's what they don't take. Well, first I'll tell you what. They, well, just in California now, there's a lot of people listening from California, but you can look this up in your own state, and you should. As soon as you have a problem with the government or the court, I would suggest, and I'm not an attorney, so I'm not giving legal advice. I'm telling you what I would do and what I do. I practice what I preach, and that's why I'm successful. I would go put them under the microscope, go get their oath of office from human resources or from the clerk of his court, get their bond. They're supposed to have a bond. They don't have a bond. Get somebody to say, well, we don't have their bond. Oh, that's that's not good for them. Then you want to get their statement of economic interest. In California, it's a Form 729 or Form 730, depending on whether they're elected or appointed. Now, with their statement of economic interest, they have to tell you all their income. So then you go to the county or the city treasurer and you ask them how much money you paid to that judge. And they have to tell you. And you find that, oh, look at here. There's a big, there's a lot of money was paid to that judge that he didn't put on his statement of economic interest. And, you know, this is this is all money under the table for petty cash, and, to, you know, we want you to see it our way. Hey, Bob. So that's why, that's why they're not impartial anymore. You sue a government in Los Angeles, and nobody ever wins there. 
I got a question. Not in the lower court, and that's the reason why. So that's where you win on appeal. You have to use the appellate court, and that's where you know that you, you weren't in a court of record either. Now, in California, I'm gonna, California oath of office is down in the government code. So in your state, you'll have to find out where the constitutionally valid oath of office is. It might be in the in the Constitution. It might be in a government code. It might be in a political code or something like that. But it's got to be there. Then you, you look at that and you compare that with the one they took. And I've done this in other states, and they're hardly ever the same. Now, in California, the oath of office that everybody's supposed to take is found in... Uh, in the Constitution, the uh, the one that they're using, which has actually been repealed, but uh, we we don't bring that up because we use it use it against them because that's where they're all at. So uh, the um, it's in in Article Six, par- uh, Section Three, Paragraph One through Five. Well, Paragraph One, Paragraph One says, "Who all shall take the oath." And then they decided to add more later, so they made that paragraph five. Then paragraph four says this this constitution. Let's see, I'm going to bring that up here. It it, it says no other no other oath shall be taken, and uh, yet they took another oath. Then paragraph two and three is the two paragraph oaths that they are required to take. And they only take the first paragraph. Hey Bob. Yes. Yeah. Does, does this does this apply to sheriffs too? Yes. Everybody has to swear an oath of office. Now, um, paragraph two. Let's see. Paragraph number one. I'll just read it to you. Members of the these are the people who are required to take it. Members of the legislature and all public officers and employees, executive, legislative, and judicial, except such inferior officers and employees as may by law be exempt, that's the guy that empties the trash, shall, shall means mandatory, before they enter upon their duties of their respective office, take and inscribe the following oath or affirmation. Now, the following oath is two, two, uh, two paragraphs. It says, I, there's a big blank space there, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of California against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of California. Now, get along this part. And I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties upon which I am about to enter. Well, for all those people that say that the Constitution is archaic and a joke, why are you taking it freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion? And then they don't, and they, they immediately <laughs> violate that. By not taking the second paragraph. Okay. Now then, here's the part they don't take. And I do further swear or affirm that I do not advocate. Now let me back up and tell you why this was put in. In the 50s, in the early 50s, we had the um, the hearings in, Los, in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, 
Joe McCarthy was was warning everybody about all the communists and all the takeover and they're they're going to take over everything. And so all the states came out with an extra paragraph to address this. So now this is how they did that. And this has not been amended out. It's still there today. I do further swear or affirm that I do not advocate nor am I a member of any party or organization, political or otherwise, that now advocates the overthrow of the government of the United States or of the state of California by force or violence or other unlawful means that within, now here, 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 we're talking about a time frame now, that within, let's see here, the five years immediately preceding the taking of this oath or affirmation, I have not been a member of any party or organization, political or otherwise, that advocated the overthrow of the government of the United States or the state of California by force or violence or other unlawful means except as follows. Now, there's a place for them to put their, their club down or whatever organization. And it goes on. If there's another blank for their name, I will not advocate nor become a member of any party or organization, political or otherwise, since he is saying the same thing, that advocates the overthrow of the government of the United States or the state of California by force or violence or other unlawful means. So you see, the first one, I didn't, I haven't belonged to one in the preceding five years, and I will not become one, a member of such. Then, um, then it says, it goes on. It says it three different times. There's another one for the future. I won't take the time to read it. Now then, paragraph number four says, and no other oath, declaration, or test shall be required as a qualification for any public office or employment. So that means when they don't take the two paragraphs, they are they have not qualified as required by the Constitution. They are impersonating an officer. Now, I'm reading a document right now that is in the courthouse where we sued those two judges that I'm talking about. No, we sued, this is another, another judge in a different county. So <clears throat> we, use this, we use this against them, and they can't get around it because it's right there from the grab and everybody. You didn't swear or affirm the oath of office that gave you your, uh, your job. They hate this, but that's too bad. Bob, can I but ask anyway. a question? No, hold, hold on, hold on. Let's let him finish, then we'll go for questions a little bit later. Okay, now we're going to go back to the affidavit of material facts um, and discovery. See, we, we talked about the three different kinds of discovery that we use, but there's another, there's another um, procedure that is similar, but it's not considered discovery. Now, with with the uh, in the federal court, you cannot start discovery until they get their chance to make a motion to dismiss you out and uh, for a summary judgment. If they can't get you to dismiss your own case, and you get to say, "Wait a minute, I um, I need discovery before I can um, make all my arguments." And so, we have, for instance, this is an affidavit of material facts. Uh, I'm going to start reading it to you so you can see what it's like. It is a material fact that 
the founding fathers attempted to force almost all future officers, agents, and employees of every federal, state, county, parish, city, township, town, and village by contract to swear or affirm and then subscribe an oath of office before entering upon the duties of their office. Now, if that's not a true fact, they have to, under this system, they have to say that's not true for this reason. And so we've got it on the record. We're starting to get it in the record. We're starting to hold our feet to the oath of office fire with that first one. Then the, the second material fact is that the sovereign American people have a right to require that every officer, agent, or employee of any government to have sworn or affirmed and then subscribed a constitutionally mandated oath of office before they have any type of constitutionally valid jurisdiction authority and its related immunities. In other words, they have no immunity. They all cry immunity. Oh, we're immune. You know, the judge says, well, I've got absolute judicial immunity. The sheriff or marshal that enforces his uh, orders says, well, I've got quasi-judicial immunity. Then code enforcement has qualified immunity. Then there's police officers' immunity and, and excuse me, good faith immunity. And so they're all immune in their minds, and we say, no, 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 no. You didn't swear the oath of office that was required before you enter your office. Therefore, you don't have an office. You're just a bunch of street people, and I'm suing you in your individual capacity. I'm not suing you in your official capacity. And by the way, you can't hire the, the county or the city or the state can't pay for your attorneys either because they don't pay for street people. You have to hire your own attorney. So that's one of the things that we go for there. Anyway, that's basically it. Now, after the that hearing, and they set you up in the federal side with a discovery schedule, and they'll tell you you've got so many days to, to do that, then you can take this same document, the material facts, and do a search and replace, and the words, it is a material fact that, and change that to admit that. It's that simple. You've got all your discovery set up. And then when you get the guy on the stand, you take the same document and you do a search and replace and put, is it not a fact that? So you've got to answer in front of your jury. The same thing, the same identical question. So we can use this procedure three times. Three times for the price of one, so to speak. So it's it's a wonderful procedure. And it's not, this affidavit is... And, and we title it Non-Discovery Affidavit of Material Facts to Support the the uh, Pleading. So in other words, the, all these things, and we've got a, a, almost 200 different facts that analyze it from every different angle. They, it's a fact until they say it's not a fact, and it supports it supports the um, the main pleading, the action of law that we use. We use an action at law rather than a complaint because action at law is of the common law. And we ask, we tell the judge that it's our intent to invoke the common law jurisdiction of this honorable court. And if this is not a court of record at the common law, we respectfully demand that it be transferred to such such court of record. And if it's kept here, then, then we expect to proceed as the court of common law. And so far, they've never switched it out. So 
Now then, when we get to the trial by jury, say the trial by jury, the jury judges both the law and the facts. That's what the founding fathers gave us. We need to kill some of those bad laws. We, the people, need to kill those bad laws. So the trial by jury is actually the fourth branch of government to get rid of bad laws. Each branch can kill a law, but if the jury does it, it's called jury nullification. In a jury trial, under the civil law, you better not bring up jury nullification. You'll be held in contempt of court. They want to be in total control. They don't want you or your friends and neighbors to have any control whatsoever. Okay, I'm ready for questions. Okay, if anybody has any questions, hit star 8 on your phone, and then we'll call on you. Just hit star 8 on your phone. Okay, we got somebody from Minnesota. Minnesota, go ahead. Hi, hi, Bob. Hi, Ted. This is Bill. I was talking to you earlier, um, yeah. and I wanted to—I kind of wanted to chime in on the uh, the oath of office. Um, I went down to the courthouse and checked on the oath of office on the judge that I'm going to uh, <clears throat> trial with on Monday, and it's, it's kind of like uh, they didn't know—they didn't have a copy of it, and they said it'd be at the state. So I called the state, and the state said I could get it online. So I went online. And there was a copy of it online, so I got a copy of it on, online. So, <clears throat> so the judge was sworn by another judge. So I looked up that judge, and that judge was sworn by another judge. So I looked up that judge, and that judge was sworn in by another judge who was in a different county. Is that is that is because in the law it says it's supposed to be in the same jurisdiction? Would that well, invalidate all, all the judges? That may, that may be true, and it may not be true. We don't know the answer to that. We're kind of guessing right now. <clears throat> I wouldn't. I wouldn't put a lot of weight on that. Uh, was, it the, was it the constitutionally mandated oath of office? That's the big question. Oh, okay. Was, was it word for word verbatim what's in the Constitution, or was it another oath? Uh, it doesn't really say on there. I mean, it just. <clears throat> it just had they just have it signed, you know, I don't know. Well, you see, just, uh, 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 the signed oath of office is verbatim, or it should be verbatim, of what's required in, in a constitution. Mm-hmm. The, 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 this is not something they can just paraphrase. It's got to be word for word. Okay, well... On this particular paper, they, it's, they don't have any constitution or anything. They're just signing, you know. They just signed the paper. So. Well, then, then, it, then it, you really need to, to go and look up the actual verbiage in the Constitution, what an oath of office is. It'll be there, word for word. Then you want to go and try to find something that is word for word in the record where this guy signed it verbatim of the what's in there. If that's not the case, then he's not an officer. He's impersonating an officer. Okay. And you can you can check with human resources or the clerk of the court, or if it's a city, it'd be the city clerk. If it's a county, it'd be the board of supervisors. Some local guy will have that oath of office and the statement of economic interest and the o and the bonds. Those are three things you need to point out and this is this is used on appeal by the way if you find out that this judge didn't take the right oath of office and he's not bonded 
then you do an interlocutory appeal. You see, though, so many people ran up the appellate ladder prematurely. They came up with what they call the one final judgment rule. In other words, you're not supposed to appeal anything until it's all over. Well, you could be sitting in jail. And uh, so there's what's called an interlocutory appeal, which is gets around the one final judgment rule because for judicial economy and in the interest of justice, this may kill the case right now before you have to go sit in jail. And so you just whenever you don't like anything they do, you've got my notice of interlocutory appeal, my verbal notice. I'm going to give you my written notice of interlocutory appeal timely. Thank you. Have a nice day. And then you and then you appeal it, but you have to with your notice of interlocutory appeal, you have to have a written uh, uh, order, so you, you or or the minute order that's signed by the clerk, but something that will show the other clerk what they've done. Sometimes they'll hold that from you. I've had them hold that out for over a year because they don't want you to go to up on appeal. Well, that's. That's a conflict of interest, too. I mean, it just shows how evil they are. They won't give you anything to appeal. But a lot of times you can get it and go right up on appeal. The bottom line is they see your issue, and it's even if it's wrong, you can't unring the bell. They see that they're in deep trouble. Next question? Okay. <clears throat> In California, I believe we have another question. Go ahead. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Hi, Chad. Hi, Bob. Um, Hello. Okay. I ha- I sent a letter. I was kind of going by Richard Fine's type of uh, request for a judge's oath of office in their bond. Uh, Riverside Superior Court. So Cal here. And what came back... <laughs> And I know I would have to ask for a certified copy, but what came back was a letter uh, from the executive office. This court is in receipt of a request for judicial administrative records. I've reviewed your request pursuant to California Rule of Court 10.500 and find that you seek disclosable records. I've included two documents. The first is a benefits summary sheet listing the benefits provided to a court commissioner of the Riverside Superior Court. Note court commissioners do not receive any local judicial benefits, which is something I also asked for. The second document is a copy of the commissioner's oath of office. No bonds are required to be filed with the court for this position. Please note, in order to obtain a certified copy, send the fee, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so I had asked specifically for what this judge made. I wanted the judicial benefits. I wanted cafeteria plans. I wanted... Uh, everything. And all they sent me was this basic benefit summary sheet that says tier one retirement plan employees get this, tier two employees get that, tier three, deferred compensation plan, basic stuff, medical, dental, holidays, vacations, bereavement leave, and life insurance. <laughs> and then I do have an oath in front of me too. And it, is, it just says for the office of commissioner of the Superior Court, uh, I, uh, Commissioner's name, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of California against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of California, 
that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties upon which I'm about to enter, signed by the commissioner and subscribed and sworn before me, um, Superior Court Judge Signature. Now, (laughs) they did not give me what I asked, and I kind of asked under a FOIA request. Now, I know I need to take another swipe at this, um, but you have called it something different. You called it the executive something. And maybe it was the way I was asking, and is this oath good? And can they get away with no bond? Yeah, well, or they're self-bonded. Now, you brought up another issue, which is good that you brought up right now, is because a real judge is the one that you want. And the real judge, he has the authority to appoint a retired judge or a judge pro tem, which is nothing but an attorney from town that's just helping out, or a court commissioner or a court hearing officer or a court referee. The only way they have any authority to be acting as a judge is if you stipulate and say, I I will stipulate to this this person uh, being being the judge. And then, but that's not final. He's got the, the, all these lesser judge uh, uh, judicial officers have to make a recommendation for, to the real judge. Only a real judge can issue a real order. And so, well, after after she did her judgment on me, um, she said to the other side that she had to have a supervising judge's signature on her order. I have never had a copy of the order with the supervising judge's signature. In fact, I don't even have an order with her signature. It's a stamp. See, this, this is more procedural problems that we can take advantage of with a notice of interlocutory appeal. You bring up all this stuff. You've got Exhibit A here. You ask this. Exhibit B was their answer, and they didn't answer it. Now you want the appellate court to put their finger in their chest and say, answer it. And also you want to see in the record your stipulation that you stipulated to a lesser judicial officer to be hearing it. Years ago, they they would have you. Basically, a lesser officer would say, well, you know, I'm not a judge, but I can help you get out of here today if you stipulate to letting me uh, act like a judge. Now they just wear a robe and and they will say, commissioner, so-and-so, that's your due process notice right up there. They expect you to know the difference. So this is a commissioner that doesn't have any authority to do anything. So you just say, well, well I'm not I'm not going to stipulate to a commissioner. I'm not going to stipulate to a judge pro tem. I want to talk to the real judge. I see. Well, I didn't think to ask that, but there no, was a notice no. on the court door that said, absent any objections from either party, this hearing will be heard by this commissioner. First thing I did was object. I I don't consent. Right. Um, and she re- she says, well, I'm staying here and I'm not leaving. And uh, I objected to the whole thing, but uh, you know, she just wouldn't. Hey, there's, there's there's ways of consent, and that's by not objecting timely. There's an old. Maximum of law that says failure to object timely is fatal. And that's not fatal. You're not going to die, but it's fatal to your issue. 
So yeah, you just have to continually say, I object. I want the record to show I object. If they say, what's the objection? Well, I'll think about it. I need, But I want the record to show that I objected timely. Then you can think about it and come up with a really good reason later. But you have to object timely. Well, my very first objection, this was a child support hearing. I, I'm was, sorry, would you say that slower? My hearing is really bad. Sure. This was a child support hearing. My first objection was asking her if she was a judge, and she said, yes, I am. And I held up the Child Support Federal Regulations Manual, and I said, it says right here in your manual that if you are a judge, no judge can sit in on a child support hearing, and therefore I request that you recuse yourself. That was another objection. Then she said, you are correct. That's why I'm now not a judge, I'm a commissioner. Well, let me address child support. There's two stages. One is when the kids are still underage and with one of the parents, and one is after the kids are adults and they're trying to get they're trying to recoup their money. Yes. Which stage are you, which stage are you in? Uh, the child's minor still. What's that? The child is a minor still. Oh, okay. Um, I suggest people pay their child support. Uh, that's only of fair, course. but you can appeal if it's if it's unreasonable. That's an appealable issue. If it's re, if it's recapturing uh, child support for the the system is out from uh, you know or the kid is twenty seven years old, then you can make an offer to pay, and that'll yes. make it go away. Yeah. So is this Dana? Yeah. Hey. Yeah, I'm in the offer stage. <laughs> I'm already there. But um, why don't you, they why don't won't you answer give me a my call <laughs> I will. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. I just want to know about that oath and, you know, if it, if it would fly and how they can get by with not giving me what the commissioner makes on that that's what we're, request. That's what we're here for. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Uh-huh. <clears throat> okay, folks, if you got any more questions, hit star eight on your phone. Star eight. It doesn't look like anybody's got any more questions at this point. Let me, uh-oh, uh-oh, hold on, hold on. Uh, just as I say that, a bunch of people can show up. Okay, California again. Yeah. Uh, hi, Chad. Hi, Chad. Hey, hey, Bob, I want to ask, wanted to ask you a question about what your experience has been when you challenge the... Um, Invalidity of the oath of office. When you challenge the invalidity of the office? Uh huh. Well, that's an appealable issue. That's for the court, for some other court to decide. Um, I've had, you know, I've helped a lot of people do stuff and I've done a lot myself, but I don't have, uh, everything hasn't come back. People sometimes they don't communicate. Like one guy had a very good success, and I didn't hear from him for two years. And then he told me that uh, they've been living in their house for two years without making any payments because of what we did two years ago. But I didn't know that. They just sometimes people get really busy and they they don't communicate. But this is what we're talking about is an appealable issue. 
that can go all the way to the Supreme Court. And I believe the oath of office is one that should go to the Supreme Court because it did go to the California Supreme Court in the California oath of office. And a a man named Professor Vogel, he got relief of taking that second paragraph because he belonged to a subversive organization. And and they he said I have a right to freedom of association as long as we don't do anything with forced violence or other off unlawful means. And so he was relieved of that. And anybody else that belongs to something like that can use that in their own court case as case law or precedent. But they can't use it as a non party, which is what they're doing. And I think we can go all the way to the United States Supreme Court, especially today with the war on terrorism, and say this is designed to squarely face terrorism. And we want to, we want to know these things for everybody that's working for us. Do you belong to such an organization or not? This has been the, the law of the state for 60 years. The Supreme Law of the State of California says this, and they're... They're not abiding by it, so they're not an officer. So that's an appealable issue that could go all the way to the United States Supreme Court. I don't think they want it to go that far because I think they would all lose their jobs, <clears throat> or they would have to they would have to sign that oath of office as mandated by our Constitution. Okay. Uh, you gave me a um, and something I was looking for when you said that they couldn't use Vogel as a non-party. So that's the good information. I, I said you gave me some information that I was um, that would be uh, useful for me when you said that they couldn't use the Vogel case as a non-party. That's right. Thank you very much because that that could be useful to uh, my the case that I have uh, going right now. Yeah, and I have that in my documents. That this this officer is not a party to the to the local case, and yet he's he's relying on it. It's not res judicata and collateral estoppel as far as he's concerned, because he's not a party. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Thank uh-huh. you. All right, next person, California. Uh, go ahead. Hello. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I I would like to ask a question about um, oath of office in relationship to the Supreme Court ruling. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, case number 13. uh, Let's see. I'll give you the actual number. 13684 that said that we had the right to rescind the loan. And uh, how do you – any suggestions on making sure that the county – will uh, file that, and then what to do with the uh, mortgager that keeps ignoring it. Or I should what, say, what, what, what to do with the who? Well, the uh, third-party who, who debt collectors, the, such as like Select Portfolio or someone who really doesn't have – I understand the first part about this. I've been studying it for quite a few years, but they ignore you. And even though the Supreme Court passed the ruling that we have the right to rescind our loan, and Scalia wrote the uh, slip on that, I think the judges were nine to zero in favor that we could rescind our loan. And they had 20 days to sue. And once you get past that, they still ignore. And uh, I. That's a, law, that's a lawsuit. So they don't ignore it. You've got to 
you got to you got to force him into squarely facing it with a lawsuit and bring in um, the Supreme Court decision and get a jury to rule in your favor. Well, the the point that I'm getting at is to get it recorded in the county. And you were talking about oaths of office. Do you have any suggestions? You know the the, the uh, county recorder of their plot and page for two. They they now will not file stuff. I sh- that uh, I should say record stuff. Here here there's the difference between the word record and file. You file things in the court and you record things with the the hall of records. And they have a, a list of documents that you, that they will accept for reservation. And so you, you look at that list and you see it. Can I can I take one of these documents that they're going to accept and massage it into what I want it to say, so that they'll look at it and it'll be on their list and get it recorded. Otherwise, they'll just say we don't record that, and then we. We say, are you practicing law? Who told you that? That well, you know, counsel told us. So try to try to make it conform to something that they will record. And there's ways to do that. You can create your own documents, but give it a title that is something they record. Thank you. Uh huh. <clears throat> okay, Paranova, you're next. Yeah, hey, Tad, how you doing? Hey. Hi. You know, I, I caught the end of this conversation on, uh, I'm not sure if Bob would be willing to address promissory notes and making payment for sanitation tickets or other type of municipal administrative type of uh, bills where they're going to take your house if you don't pay these bills. I, I'm trying to find out the best route of paying these huge, huge sanitation bills with a promissory note or some other form of payment. Uh, The the offer to pay is the best document that I've ever developed. Okay. They they cannot get around it. That's their law. It's the 20th Act of April 2, 1792 that defined a dollar. Now, you require me to pay something else, and by what authority can you require me? to pay in something else, and do you make everybody pay in that something else that you just told me that you were requiring Okay. Or are you discriminating against me for my knowledge? Okay. So do you have a a template for the offer to pay? I've got all kinds of offers to pay. I've got them for credit cards and school loans and car loans and IRS and website tax work. Yeah. Yeah, Bob, we can handle that through the website. Yeah, uh, John, John and I are working on that. So, if she would like, she can. How much is the the fine for Terranova? Oh, six thousand dollars. Okay, it would be worth five hundred to get rid of it, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you see, let me let me address your first your, your first question about promises to pay, and there was uh, accepted for value or A for B. Those things don't work too well. This all came about with what they call redemption about 20 years ago. And there were some good success stories, but then the opposition started opposing them, and uh, people went to jail using redemption. And I, I I have never... There's people in jail tonight that are from what they did with the redemption stuff. 
So uh, the offer of pay, nobody ever goes to jail. That's just a plain, simple, uh, gee, I want to get this cleared up. I'm offering to pay. I just need to know what you're requiring. I don't want to know what you will take or what you may accept. I want to know what you, if I require that you tell me what you require me to tender as payment. And that's the problem. Yeah. I, there was one, one just, I'll just give you a close, uh, uh, how they, how they responded one time that was, uh, it's almost funny. The judge says the court orders that the defendant may <laughs> pay in Federal Reserve notes. May is permissive. That's not required. So we beat that one. We, we, so we, didn't, ask what, we didn't ask what we may pay. We know we may, may pay or, or tender a, a, an offer to pay. So you can't pay anything. So he used the P word. And we, don't, that's, we, hit, we hit him with that. But, uh, well, what happened... In 1792, what was that um, document? It's called the Coinage Act of April 2, 1792. And they defined a dollar there as a weight or a measure of a precious metal. It's like an ounce or a pound or a ton. A dollar is a weight, and it's a very precise weight. It's... 371 and 4 sixteenths of a grain of wheat in weight. And they came wow. up with that they came up with that oddball number by weighing a bunch of Spanish mill dollars that started out at 375 grains and people whittled on them and people wore them out and so they said we have to have our new money at par with the average of all the money that Everybody's being used. So they, they weighed a bunch and they came up with a weight of 371 and 4 sixteenths grains of 0.999 fine silver. So a dollar is a dollar of silver. We call them silver dollars, but the best, the actual name is a dollar of silver, or it's like a pound of butter and a ton of hay and a dollar of silver. And that's their law. So we, we say, you know, that's the only thing it looks like you can see. In the 20s after April 2, 1792, it says these words. It says, the money of account of the United States. Well, now his, that hits the IRS right between the eyes. Uh-huh. Shall be had and held in the form of a dollar, dime, cent, and mill. Dime is spelled strange, D-I-S-M-E. And a mill. Well, what's a mill? It's one-tenth of a cent. The old cent was bigger than a quarter in solid silver. Now that's what they did to cheat us. They cut it way down to a little piece of copper-coated zinc. So the mill was one-tenth of a cent, and that's in the Quinny Jack of, of that old date, and it's never been changed. And the California Government Code, uh, 6850, says the money of account of the state of California and all court proceedings shall be held had and held in the form of a dollar cent in the mail. They leave the dime out. <clears throat> and uh, mm-hmm. the Coinage Act of 1965, which was a lot more current than the one of, seven, uh, of uh, 1792, it says this act does not change the definition of a dollar. 
Nothing ever changed the definition of a dollar. Yet when you get a bill from the government, they use a dollar sign. Now, some of them are getting smart, and they're not using a dollar sign, and they know you're going to assume it's dollars because it's got a decimal point in it. But if they use a dollar sign, we take advantage of that. Do you find that you have to take them to court in order to enforce it? Sometimes. Or or as a defense, and it may come back off. Sometimes all you just need is to have them back off. Right. So you don't use anything constitutional to say that, you know, this is according to the Constitution of lawful money, that it could be promissory notes or it could be any any other form. You well, don't bring the, that up. The word, the word promissory note doesn't show up in any Constitution. That came about in, in 1933, and that's where they developed new money with promissory notes. Right. And that's so, your, signa- your signature on the promissory note makes that promissory note worth the face value of the promissory note immediately. It's an asset worth the face amount. You sign a promissory note for $500,000, that piece of paper is now worth $500,000, but not at the money of account. But it's that in their little fictional world, it's worth that. And they put it in the stock exchange, and it's traded all over the world, and they're taking all this play money and making trillions out of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a a valid defense uh, as well as the offer to pay. You know, Uh, I'm trying to find the most effective method. There are no shortcuts. Yeah. Well, the offer to pay is, is about as much of a shortcut as possible. Now, if you want asset protection, I'm going to throw this out. We do foundations, which is the ultimate in asset protection and privacy. We can get you a bank account with no social attached to it. Nobody knows who owns that house anymore. It's some foundation. You don't own it. You used to own it, but you transferred it through for for asset, uh, uh, for family uh, planning only, and so there's it's not a tax for events. <laughs> but um, then there's no probate. You know, probate is another big uh, scam. I had one man come to me and he said, you know, my mother left me $200,000. After probate, I got $12. They finally got it solved when they ran it all, ran out of all the money. So if you do a foundation, there is no probate. You own nothing, but you control it. You get to live in it. You get to use it. Can you do that foundation uh, transfer while the house is in the foreclosure process? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I, I wanted to bring up the fact that they have a foreclosure judgment against my house, but I was but able to prove... That's not going to... Putting it in the foundation is not going to save it from a foreclosure. You still have to fight it, fight the foreclosure, but oh, you, yeah. can still move, you can still move it around. And, okay. Uh, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, I was able to prove that the assignment was forged by the notary. Um, and yeah. I try to find out if they had a bond. The notary doesn't need a bond. So that's a secure. That's called a securitization audit, where they can find all those evils. They they mm-hmm. find the robo signers. The courts don't like to hear the ro- word robo signer. So 
You can call it unauthorized signer, and I've developed a better one called a criminal forgery. <laughs> yes, I like was, that one. <laughs> the guy that signed that was not the president of the bank. He forged his name. The criminal forgery, and it looked like the opposition attorney here is attempting to get this honorable court to become an accomplice to the crime. Yes. Well, I got the, the, the Secretary of State to vouch for me, the Attorney General to vouch for me. I've got everybody on my side right now. And when I went to court two weeks ago, they didn't show up. The, the, the other side didn't show up. Then you, um, asked, you, asked, you asked for a default judgment. Well, you know what? This is not a, a in person. It's all paperwork. And in the state of New York, everything is done by paper. Okay, oh. now let me tell you, Camille Harris, the, the uh, Attorney General of the state of California, just came up months ago now with a really awesome document against foreclosures and banks and stuff, and you can get that. It's a it's public, public document. It's got a lot of wonderful, wonderful stuff in it that you can use. What, who that's who a, wrote that's, it? That's a, that's a public record, see, so you can use public oh, What's the name of the... What's the name of the person then? Camille Harris. She's the uh, Neil who? Attorney General. Uh, Camille. Just, oh, Camille uh, what? Harris. The Attorney General for the state. Attorney General for the state of California. Okay, okay, I can look that up. Yeah, because I was also able to find out that all foreclosures that were start were set to go into foreclosure were 100% robo-signers, not 95%, 100% in all states. I, I have a document that states that, too. So no, I was able to, to research this, and I found that, that my guy was number two on the list of robo-signers. Yeah. You know, he wasn't, even the, he wasn't even the top guy. But there was a lot of uh, class action lawsuits, and there was one in Virginia where they they just gave the bank a little slap on the hand after they found out that it was all these forgeries. They didn't really do anything, you know, to punish the bank. So they well, kept on me, doing let me, it. Let me tell you how you set the, the, the bank up. It's not the bank anymore. The only one that can foreclose on you is the loan servicer. The loan servicer will get a, a trustee that will do the dirty work, but it's the loan servicer that you deal with. And you want to do a decision of your signature, and then you want to do a QWR letter. That's a qualified written request letter. They have 20 days to say we got it and 60 days to answer it. They never do that. That's a default. That's two defaults. Then you make a series of offers to pay. Gee, you want to get this cleared up. And every offer to pay gives them more bad things that the first one didn't get, have. In other words, it just gets worse. So they default four mm -hmm. times there. Default means discharge. Well, you know what? It was, it was at this point that I had a summary judgment already against me after nine years in the court that I had to go back to them and say, listen, I want to call this 5015, which is it's a CPLR where there's fraud. So the only thing that saved my case was the 5015, where they were able to open it up again and say, okay, prove that there's fraud here. And, you know, at first they were saying that I had no business 
looking at the assignment because I'm not a party to it. So I have no business trying to validate something that doesn't concern me. Well, but, you can say so it I, certainly does concern me because I'm going to lose my house over it. That's just a, a twist, <laughs> a twist in terminology. Yes, it does. I think, I, yeah, I, I <laughs> dealt with that subject. I also dealt with the fact that I also reclaim the note uh, for my yeah. personal escrow. Right, right. The, so I, the, I did that. The, the trust deed is no longer securing the money that house, so they're committing fraud upon the court to better foreclose on, foreclose on this promissory note that's reverted back to me when they when they sold the promissory note. No, I, you right. say, I, I, I need discovery here. We've got to get request for documents and papers and request for admissions uh, in the record so that uh, whoever's going to try this uh, will be fully aware of all issues. Well, you know what? I have to wait until uh, maybe another month and a half for the 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 order will come back whether they sign it or not. I'm going to find out. And at that point, I I asked them for jubilee because you know because it's just fraud, outright fraud. So I didn't even ask for discovery. I just said this is jubilee time. So okay, we'll see. Uh, uh, Tab, there's one other final thing I want to. Uh, bring up here and that's about uh, people that have that are in court without an attorney the supreme court has made it advantageous for us to not have an attorney and here's here's what i'm going to read part of a document i did for these one people uh they and uh, they have their name hereby submits that pursuant to the united states supreme court regarding haynes versus Turner 404 u.s both 19 and 521, 1972. Now, 404 is book number 404. This means there's 403 books before this book. In the U.S., that's a United States Supreme Court case at page 519. Uh, that's where it starts, but over on page 521, it says, uh, pro se litigants shall be uh, held to a less stringent standard. And so you're you're demanding that they be considered as pro se uh, litigants, that you be be considered as a pro se litigant. And then here's the next one is we submit that pursuant to United States Supreme Court Haynes versus Kerner and Pulaski versus CIA, and that's found in 953, 953, that means 952 books in front of that. Federal second, that means it's the second set. There was a first set. Page number 25, pro se litigants, complaints, pleadings, and other papers are exempt from dismissal regarding form and not substance. So when they make a motion to dismiss you out of court, they have all kinds of good reasons. You throw this at them. Then uh, another one. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Mm-hmm. The one here Wait. that's really... The, the, the court has... Listen to, listen to this. Uh, the court must inform the pro se litigant of the petitioner's of the petition's deficiency. They have to tell you how, then they have to tell you how to fix it. They have to give the and they'll tell you, well, I'm not your lawyer. I'm not. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. Under Haynes versus Kerner and Pulaski versus CIA, you have to. You, the court must instruct the pro se litigant on the necessary information for any needed corrections. See, an attorney can't use this because he's supposed to know the law. 
But we have uh-huh. we have all these stuff, and this is in our opposition for a motion to dismiss or a motion for a summary judgment. You can't dismiss. You can't do a summary judgment because the Supreme Court said so. I'm pro se. You've got to help me. I didn't say it. The Supreme Court said it. Oh, you, you have uh, the sa- saving of the suitors clause. Say that again, please. Yes, yeah, saving of the suitor. I think that's I uh, something similar. That's another good thing. I don't have that quote in the site in front of me. Anyway, hey, we got some uh, more people with questions waiting in line. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, by the uh, way, okay. turn it over. Why don't you get a hold of me, okay? Yeah, okay. Thank you, Ted. All, All right. right. Thank you. Take okay. Bye-bye. North and Central Orange County. Go ahead. North and Central Orange County, uh, your phone was just muted and then unmuted, so go Ask ahead. Ask me again. Hi. I just had a foundation question since we've kind of been on that subject. Okay. And I wanted to ask, you said a foundation is better than a trust. Um, since a trust requires you to have other people involved, a trustee and all of that, uh, what does the foundation require as far as other people in it and uh, if you put your house into it, can you put the house on the foundation first and land the patent it afterwards? Yeah. Uh, because it's no longer in your name. And um, can you get rid of tax, uh, property taxes through either one of those? Neither um, one of those will get rid of the property taxes, but there, we have offers to pay for the property tax that should get rid of it. The uh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, foundations. The problem with foundations, and they're sold on the radio all the time. Uh, you need a living trust, and uh, that's a statutory trust. The trustee owns your stuff. That's why you trust. You're the trustor. The trust. The trustee. Now I have one guy that I'm working with. He was in bankruptcy court, and the bankruptcy court appointed a trustee who had a $60,000 IRS bill, and they sold this guy's trucks and trailers and stuff to pay the trustee's tax bill because he owned this guy's stuff all of a sudden. So you don't want any kind of a trust, not even a, a common law trust, because a common law trust, the trustee owns your stuff. The foundation, right. and my foundation owns the, owns the stuff, and it has an executive director who appoints a managing director and has a letter to the bank that says he, this, this, this individual was uh, authorized to open up bank accounts for the foundation. And then uh, the board of, the, the, uh, board of, of uh, the board, I should just say the board, can be your family, the people who will inherit stuff, and uh, they can choose a different executive director or just eliminate the executive director and have a, one managing director or several manage, co-managing directors. Now then something happens to you, and now the house still is owned by the foundation, uh, and you transfer it without a sale, so it doesn't trigger Proposition 13. Now I've got lived in my house for 41 years, so I've got a very low tax rate. Now, it's never going to be sold. It, the, the, the board members will manage it forever, and uh, everybody gets to use it for generation upon generation, and there's never any 
probate where the judge and the attorneys are burning up the the assets, which is that's that's their job. That's the way they get paid. So this is this keeps them out of the picture completely. So I've done common law trusts and common law ministries. Ministries are similar to the foundation uh, and institutes. I did an educational institute for a lady, and it's similar to a ministry. Those, those three are basically ministries, but the uh, uh, I don't do trust anymore. Because and I'll okay. tell you why. I was a trustee on a family that uh, needed to sell their house. And to ask her, they found out there was a huge judgment against me from a court in San Diego, California, that I didn't even know about. And I went and looked into it, and they said that they served somebody. Well, they uh, checked around, and they served one of my homeless guys, who is a lot taller than me and has a lot of black hair. Well, I'm almost (laughs) tall. And so we had to do a quiet title action against me to get rid of the crowd on See, you don't know what, what, that's why you don't want to have a trustee. It could be a good guy like me that has a judgment he doesn't even know about. I couldn't even defend it. I didn't know about it. Wow. So okay. there is no and, trustee in a, in a foundation. And the, the foundation owns the assets. And it's really easy. You, you, you can transfer your vehicles into one foundation. You just put it in the name of the foundation with your name as the managing director, and it goes right to. They don't even question you. When you when you uh, transfer your your house, uh, you say in there that this is done for estate planning purposes only. There is no selling price. There is no buyer. There is no seller. Do you get an EIN now, for banking purposes only? That's that's the only reason we get an EIN number. We deal with the IRS. To get an EIN number that stands for employer identification number, and you never have any employees, so you never use it except for banking purposes only. It's equivalent to a social security number, but they they need a they need that to open up an account. And both Wells Fargo and Bank of America will open them up for me in several different banks without a social attached. Great, and then you can live in it. Yes. And is it difficult to sell if you decide to sell it outside of that foundation? You, you can sell it whenever you want to, and nobody owns, nobody knows who the who who uh, are the board members or the directors. It's just so private. You know, and I, oh, are, I, I, are documents required? Like, um, say that again, you know, please, slowly. Are do, are documents documents required? As far as how you're setting up your board and and all this stuff, uh, oh, it never it, it, it never expires. Like statutory stuff expires. This is non-statutory. Set up the common law. There's no okay. annual fees, no annual fees to the government, no annual fees to any attorney. And your documents remain private. You don't have to show them to anybody. I've done hundreds of them, and they've never been challenged. Well, except for the bank to open an account, right? Bob? What's that? You'll have to show the documents in order to open a bank account. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, the foundation is about 48 pages long altogether. That's with about 12 pages of the actual foundation. We, we do that on uh, uh, parchment paper. It's beautiful. And then the rest of it's just done on regular typing paper, and it's all the, the education that I've developed. It's got every form. It's got 
forms for independent contractors. If you need to hire somebody, you don't want an employee, then you have to pay their tax. So you just say, you know, just give me a bill, I'll pay the bill. You're, you're an independent contractor. Come and go as you please, just get the job done. Does it offer so any sort of protection like a shield, of, like a corporation would from liability? Yeah. And are they? Is it easy to get an insurance company to insure the house uh, yeah. under that new name? You're, you're going to get insurance, yes. And and the shielding okay. question, the protection from liability, uh, shielding or protection from liability, any help there? Like a corporation I'm not, offers. I'm not understanding. My hearing is really bad. I'm sorry. Okay. Does it, is does there, it, hey Bob, does it help shield from liability? Yes, you don't okay. own it. Actually, Dana, yes. we do have a lot of these FAQs at the website under John and Bob's let's, coaching. We we have a lot of information on the uh, foundation. Let's is there an F- FAQ you, page? Yes. Well, I've been reading let, it, yeah, but I didn't let, see that. Let me explain something to you. You put your, your high liability assets in one foundation and you put your your house and other things in another foundation. I do two foundations now ah. for half of the price I used to charge for one. Because I do so many of them, I brought the price way down. And I say, you really need two, so the second one is free. <clears throat> anyway, let's say you have six cars. You've got a big family. You've got six cars, and somebody steals one of your cars and drives to a busload of lawyers, and you, and they want to know who else, what, what does that foundation own? As soon as that accident happens, you transfer everything out into another foundation. So the only thing that is owned by that foundation is that wrecked car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And if you do a ministry foundation, does that offer any help in tax exemption? No, although people have, when I do a ministry, I know one lady that has given tax deductible receipts and it hasn't hurt her at all. But I don't I don't give legal advice, so I don't tell people that that's one of the benefits. But I will tell you that somebody has done that. Hmm. And I think that could be developed if somebody has the time. I'm sure that it can be developed because it's it's a religious corp- it's a religious uh, entity, and it's yeah. we set them up. They're, they're for humanitarian purposes. You know, I help homeless people. I stopped counting at a hundred, so I you know oh, I have. Wow. I have a lot of homeless people right now. I'm, I'm helping. Uh, well, my home, my home is uh, a place for traveling ministers coming through who stay here often for the next paper hotels. Fantastic. Um, There's your humanitarian purpose. Yeah, okay. okay. I see you can do more humanitarian things if you don't have all this money going out to the government. So it's a, That's for sure. It's a, it's a blessing to have a foundation. That's for sure. For, as long as they aren't alarmed that there's some church going on and they're going to have a parking problem and all that stuff in the neighborhood. Yeah. So, so anyway, thank you. Hey, hey, Dana, can I contact you a little bit after the call? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'm about <laughs> ready. Okay. Well, yeah. we got somebody else that's waiting in line that's got a question. Go ahead. Oh, well, let me, let me, there's one other thing I want to okay. say about the foundations. Uh, when I'm doing foundations, sometimes I take a few extra minutes and I, I create more foundations so I have some on the shelf. And so I have about, I don't know, 20 on the shelf. They're called seasons now. And so we shelf, can tell you... Shelf foundations, ready to go. 
It's a different. We have different names that you can choose, and it's deliverable within mere moments. Otherwise, it takes a while to create a new one. We have to go to the IRS and see if this name is available. And, okay, uh, and then you just go down one, and transfer title at the uh, at the county. I, one, one lady wanted the Blue Sky Foundation, and that was already taken. But my Blue Sky Foundation was not, so we got my Blue Sky for her. I understand that. Yeah. Okay. Okay, next. All right. Mazar, you're next. Hello, good evening. Yes. Uh, my question for Bob is, uh, it has to do with what he said about how default means discharge. And um, I hope to be able to use that uh, to, uh, to handle a problem I have right now in court uh, regarding an alleged debt uh, alleged by a bank. I'm trying to default them in a non-judicial process. Now, if I'm successful, how would I enforce that default? How would I bring it to the attention of the court? Do I have to do that in court on the public side, or do I have to do that privately outside of court, like mail it to the presiding judge or something like that? Well, the, the, the default means discharge is in the Uniform Commercial Code. And there's some courts that say we're not under that, but they are. That's just a lie. But they're, they're all under the Uniform Commercial Code, the UCC. And so you just show them how, you know, this, this is the law. I didn't write it. I'm just taking advantage of it. This is the law, and this is the facts. On this date, they, I, I made this offer to pay or whatever, and they defaulted on this other date, and now that means a discharge. And, and I respectfully demand that uh, a judgment be entered in my in my favor. Now, there are people that have dealt, gone farther, and they issue their own judgments. I, I've not done that yet, and I, I don't say it's not right. Uh, I just haven't had the time to go develop that. But uh, there's there's a lot of people doing what I do in, in different ways, and I respect everybody's work. Okay, so, so I, I would just I, if I was already in court, I would just push it that way. That's what okay, I. Okay, so do it, do it in court then. Uh, bring it to the to the attention of the judge in in court. Yeah, the beauty of having the system do it is that then you can have the marshal or, or sheriff enforce it. Because everybody says, well, that was done by a real judge. Yes. Okay. All right, I understand. Thank you very much. Yes. All right, uh, Bob, that's it for the questions. Although I do have one quick one. You talked about the oath of office and the financial statement. I forget what that was called. Yeah, it's called the. Um, it's called the. Oh, let me think about it. Financial statement interest? Of, no, Executive statement, something. statement of economic interest. Does that apply to sheriffs as well? I'm not sure. Now, there's, okay. there's one of the times I don't have a positive answer. I would ask for it and let them tell me that they don't, they're not required. <laughs> okay. All right. There's a lot of people shoot themselves in the foot and say, well, they're not going to do this, and you know, that they don't have to do that. But I just go ahead and do everything I want to do as though they had to, and then let them prove that they didn't have to. 
All right. Well, hey, listen, we're going on almost two hours now, so I think uh, we don't have any more questions. So we're going to go ahead and call it an evening. So I appreciate you uh, spending the time with us this evening to go over this. What's our call going to be about next week? Do you know? I've got to think about it. Okay. No. Okay. No, I put I put in about fourteen hours a day. I've I've done so many documents today, and I, I my phone rings, and I have to go here and go there. It's hard for me to to plan, but I get everything done in time. Um, you know, when I have to tell people, well, I'm in the middle of a deadline. You're going to have to wait, and I do say that, but I haven't figured out yet what we're going to talk about next week. But I, I'll okay. I'll let you know. Time enough to put it on the on the internet. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bob, and thank you everybody else for joining us. And we'll see you again next week. Good night. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.